created live on Fireside. I was telling people when you weren't here, you know, to follow you at bigboldbrave.us. You can also find Clint on all the socials, Clint Hatton. Um, you can also find Big Bold Brave on all the socials as well. So Clint, um, if, and I love, hold on, it says Clint has to adjust the microphone. Oh, good. Yeah, we got that. Thank you, Gary. Um, we have some people. Uh, if you guys are here on LinkedIn, whether you're LinkedIn, Twitch, YouTube Live, um, whether you're here watching the replay on Fireside or you're in the room, I know I've just had some people texting me saying, I'm going to jump in at some point. Um, we appreciate you guys being here. Again, my name is Juliet Hahn. This is Your Next Step Live, live on Fireside with my guest, Clint Hatton. You guys can find uh, him everywhere, but you can also go to his bigboldbrave.us. You are a first-time author yesterday. Am I correct? I am. Yeah, well, I've been pre-selling it for a little bit, but yesterday was the official launch. So yes, we are off and running. Yeah. So I would, if you can just get into, um, you know, I want your, you were a pastor, right? A minister. Um, you also, so you've been preaching for many years. Yeah, I, I, I was until January. So now I'm actually fully in, uh, I, I did that for 17 years and now I'm fully in with my vision for big, bold, brave, the personal development company speaking and, just finding different avenues to help a broader audience. Right. And I know when we connected, we, you know, we're going to be speaking, you know, for 15 minutes, my, my listeners know, I kind of do a little, let's see how our energies go. And then we kept going and I was like, Oh, wait, 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 we, we, we need to stop. Um, and as I was telling the, you know, the listeners before you have a pretty, pretty tragic story. Um, and what came out of the story is, you know, is this beautiful creation that you're creating. So if you can kind of, uh, you know, just start a little bit with your background, kind of where you grew up. That's what I always love to, you know, have the listeners listen to and, um, and then we'll, and we'll continue with the story from there. Sounds great. Yeah. Well, I grew up in sunny Southern California and spent the first 19 years of my life there. So just had what I consider to be a pretty, pretty average, normal life for the most part. Um, like you, I was an athlete, mostly football and baseball, so had a lot of fun with that, a lot of success with that. But then, you know, things started to shift a little bit when I was about 12. My parents had been married for 25 years and my dad ended up deciding to have an affair, which ended up breaking up the family for a while. It got pretty ugly. He moved out, moved in with this other person, uh, actually and her sons, which was, you know, incredibly awkward for me. And during that period of time, my mom began to, you know, she didn't know how to cope. They'd gotten married when they were 18 and 16 years old. You know, they're from a different generation. So she had, you know, suicide ideation, um, almost killed me actually twice when she was trying to commit suicide in a car and then once with a handgun. And so, you know, that was when for me early on, life began to shift. At that time, I began to use all the wrong coping mechanisms, right? You know, because I was pretty angry. So I drank, I did a ton of drugs and really, Julia, if it wasn't for sports, I probably would have went completely down the tubes, but I stayed, uh, you know, I stayed sober enough when I needed to, to be able to compete and succeed. So, so that was kind of the first real big bump in the road for me was back then, but eventually, you know, I, I moved on and, uh, at 19, I had my second catastrophic knee injury playing junior college football, hoping that I was going to be able to get a full ride to a, you know, a bigger school. And so my life just kind of went down this other path that I never planned. Uh, I became a professional salesperson, but I also got into meth 
And so, you know, during even that entire time, nine years, I did hard drugs, I did meth. Um, uh, although most people wouldn't have even known it, you know, cause I wore the suit and the tie and, you know, other than if you were with me partying, you wouldn't have known probably, but my life really went down, you know, kind of a dark road. And then once I got to my thirties, um, that was when faith kicked in for me. And that was just a foundational thing that helped me begin to turn my life around. And then I'll just leave you with this last one, then we'll launch out. And then I actually joined a network marketing company. You know, we've all been approached by one by now, right? And so mm -hmm. I joined this nutritional company and it ended up being that they all happen to be believers, but more than that, just the mindsets and the life philosophies just began to do something inside of me that I realized I was better than what I was showing the world. And so that's really when things began to really shift for me. And that was, you know, when I was 31 years old, I'm 57 now. Right. I mean, and, and so, you know, I, my parents actually got divorced when I was 12. Um, they did not have a terrible divorce. You know, it was kind of a lot of kids, just a lot of responsibility. They got married young. So it was like, you know, they were both uh, approaching 40. My dad was just turned 40. Um, and I remember it is a, it is a strange time. It's a strange time when you're all of a sudden like, okay, my life that I thought was going to be is kind of changing a little bit. And when you're a young person and your mind can't really grasp it, it's hard to then navigate and especially seeing your mom go through what she went through that had to been really, really tough. Um, you know, and so many people unfortunately do go look to, to numb it, right? You want to numb those feelings. You want to numb, you don't know how to do it. And so you turn to drugs. So when you found, um, faith, yeah. Was it an, kind of an automatic, okay, I need to just stop drugs or was it, you know, a really rough stop? No, that's, that's a great question. And I'll, and I'll point out really quick, cause I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to this. My parents actually reconciled a couple of years later, but that didn't undo the damage. Right. And, and I think they even knew at times that I was using bad coping mechanisms, but I don't know if it was just guilt, shame, whatever it was, but you know, they just never addressed it. So anyway, that said, um, that's a great question because when I was about 30, this is just before I actually decided to become a man of faith. I had done, I, I was married before. So that's also part of my story. I was in a five-year marriage that was just a complete train wreck. You know, I was a train wreck. I was a terrible husband. I won't even, I don't even need to get into her because, you know, I, I was my own issue. So, um, but we didn't do well together. <laughs> and so the, there was this one night where we decided we both were going to go out and do meth one more time. And so we did. And Juliet, the next day I woke up and I felt like just garbage. And I realized I wasted so much of the night before anybody who's ever been in that world. You know, a lot of times you spend hours waiting to get the stuff, you know, and all that stuff. And I just thought, man, this is not how I want to live my life. This is not who I want to be. And so I made a decision that day. I was done and I've never used since. And that was actually before I decided to, you know, go to a church and, and, you know, have an experience with what it's like to live with faith. So it started before that. Now I would say where the faith really began to change my life was not the drug addiction. It was really just, again, change my mindset about who I really am, what I was created to be, that I could really make a difference in the world, you know, cause I'd always, always loved helping people. And for one, whatever reason, people would share the craziest things with me, you know, just really intimate things. I remember one night we were doing meth and I was with a, a, 
a group of people, but they all left to go get more alcohol. And I was left with the wife of one of the guys, had never met them before. The next thing I know, she's telling me about how she'd been raped and, and all these different issues that she had never even told her husband, you know. Mm. So for whatever reason, I was a magnet to that kind of thing. But obviously, you know, not very well equipped <laughs> to truly be much of a help in those days. Right. And, and you, you know, the reason why I asked you that is because it, it really fascinates me the way, you know, there is an addict and people will say, oh, an addict can like, right. Some people don't believe like you're an addict. You can't, you can just stop, especially if someone can stop, like, like I make my, my mind up, I stop. There's other people that truly can't. And for whatever reason, it's just the way their brain is wired. So it always fascinates me kind of, I think it gives a little insight into who you are, but also where your journey then takes you because of being like, okay, you know what? I'm done you know, I've lived, I've lived life. I've lived a pretty hard life and now I'm done. And now I'm going to, I've just had enough, you know? And so it's really important for people to also, you know, you always say, okay, that rock bottom, that person should be now being like, okay, this is how much further can they get? And they do, they find a deeper, deeper, deeper hole, um, which is, you know, which is sad, but they're, again, I believe in God, but some people believe in the universe. Some people believe in both. I believe in both. Um, I truly believe we all do have a path. And if we can just kind of listen, sometimes listen to the cues or, you know, maybe it was God being like, I'm going to make him really wait to piss him off and see where this, what happens, you know, or let's make this situation that happens. So, um, from there you decided, okay, I'm done. So when did then that first marriage end? It really wasn't too long after. So, you know, without getting in the weeds with you know, my quote unquote salvation experience, you know, I went to church one day with some friends because I just knew there was something different about them. It was really the only reason they were very successful business people. But I noticed they always seemed to have a calm and a peace, even when storms are going on. So I went and that's when I made a decision to follow God. Well, she wasn't too thrilled about that. And I just really knew <clears throat> at that time in my life, I really felt like I was called to do something inside of the church, which is something she just wasn't interested in. So it was only, I don't know, eight, nine months after getting a bunch of counseling, we went to quote unquote Christian marriage counseling. And just one day she decided to serve me with divorce papers and just said, I, I just, this isn't where I want to go with my life. And the irony of that, Juliet was, is, you know, we had had some really ugly fights during those five years. And I remember being angry for a couple of minutes because no one wants to be rejected, right? Mm -hmm. And then I remember just this kind of calm coming over me like, why are you so angry? You know, because our life was miserable. And we actually ended up having <laughs> for about three hours, probably the best calmest conversation that we had had maybe ever. And so we ended up following through with the divorce and I'm, I went my way and she went hers. And that's ultimately what kind of led to me moving from California to Dallas and, and starting over. Right. Which is, I mean, again, it's one of those things like you're, yes, as you said, no one likes to be rejected, but it was best, maybe one of the best things that happened to you, um, because where it led you. So what did, where, where did Dallas look like? What, what kind of take us through that part of your life? You're clean now, you're, you know, right. newly divorced, you found God. That's exactly right. So, you know, when, when I was thinking about making a move, there was actually three different areas that I was thinking about. I had some friends in Southern California that were doing some ministry that I was interested in. I had some in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then this network marketing company I was a part of, I had a couple of friends. One with my upline was very successful. You know, she's one of the ones that was on the cover of Success Magazine, that kind of stuff. 
and they were coming to Dallas to build the business. But it was the one place I'd never been. And so to shorten the story, I, I prayed about it. I got counsel for some people and it just everything pointed to Dallas, even though that was the one place I had no reference point, no job. So I literally sold all my possessions, uh, didn't have a job ready for me. And I moved with one of the married couples that was involved in that business. And we we kind of had an agreement that we would stay together for one year just to kind of help each other get in, you know, get involved in the business here and do what we need to do. And then we would part. And so that's what happened. But shortly after I got here, I just really felt like the network marketing business had kind of run its course with me. I wasn't really passionate about the business. It was more the, you know, just helping people side of things. And mm-hmm. I was really good at speaking in front of an audience and motivating people. So that's when I decided to, I'm just going to see what happens. <laughs> and so it was really a total blind journey, you know? Um, I mean, with faith, I felt like I was making the right decisions, but but there was no clear path. And then ultimately I, I had to get a job, you know, of course I got a job right away, bought a new car right away so I could get around. And ultimately I ended up in the cellular business when it was relatively new. This has been, you know, 25 plus years ago, managed a, a pretty good sized store and just kind of waited to see, okay, I moved 2000 miles away from everything I know. And now I manage a cell phone store. <laughs> what is up with that? You know? But uh, after a couple of years of doing that, I developed some other skills and ended up going to work for a, a very large ministry at that time, one of the biggest in the world. And that kind of launched me into the Christian realm of ministry, if you will. Got it. Got it. I mean, that, and again, it's, it is so funny the where, like where life takes you and, and, and makes you reflect, you know, and sometimes you think about things that you went through and then you reflect on, okay, this is where I am. And sometimes I talk about this a lot on the podcast, you know, when sometimes that unknown is like really what, um, sometimes stops people, right. I don't know what's going to happen. So I don't want to push myself forward because I don't want to fail or I'm just nervous. And sometimes some of that unknown and what happens in the unknown is all of a sudden those two things come together and you're like, Ah, okay. I see you. I, I see you. <laughs> I get it I now. Get it all yeah. that, yeah. all that, you know, stress I was doing all this that I was doing. And then all of a sudden it was like, boom, okay, that makes sense. I'm going to, you know, move forward. So when you got involved in the ministry, what, what was your role? And then how did you grow there? Well, two very exciting things happened there because one of the things that I really felt was going to happen through this move at some point is I, I really felt like I was going to get a second chance at being a husband and we did not have kids. So, you know, I wasn't a father yet. So when I went to work for this organization, I actually met my now bride of 20 years here in about a month and a half uh, at that particular job. I was actually being interviewed to work in her department. Mm. And so two things kind of were all happening at the same time. Now that's a whole other story in itself. We could talk for two hours about our our story and how we ultimately ended up becoming married because it didn't happen quickly. It was uh, it was about a year and a half long journey with a lot of twists and turns. But but anyway, I, I go in and I I meet her and I'm thinking hmm, there's something about her. And so then they start training me. So ultimately, I started with just being. Uh, this is going to sound smaller than it is, but I was in charge of book sales. Now this particular organization, we did events. A small event was here in the United States with, you know, 20,000 people. We do Madison Square Garden. We do American Airlines Center, you know, stuff like that. So I was dealing with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of product. 
Uh, and then we would do international events as well. Biggest one I was ever a part of was about a half a million people in one service. So, you know, these were very large venues, very large events. But eventually I began to develop some other skills, did a lot of stage uh, work as far as, you know, hosting and, you know, just announcements, things of that nature. Uh, ended up taking on a whole bunch of things. Eventually they called me an event coordinator, but really I did all kinds of different things. I handled all of our radio um, newspaper print ad, you know, uh, promos for the events, things like that. Um, handled a bunch of venue venues. I was constantly working with, you know, we'd have big time musical artists or other people that written books or whatever come in. So I was kind of the liaison for them. I was kind of a jack of all trades. When I left, they ended up actually giving my job to three different people. But <laughs> I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. It just, it didn't make a lot of sense. I was wearing too many hats. Right. But you know what I love? I mean, so many different things. And I, we talked about this before, cause I, you know, I, I do want to have you and your wife on together, not just to talk about your journey, but then also to talk about, um, you know, the tragedy that you guys had in your life and then how kind of this unfolded because we talked about that. So we will definitely get there. So anyone that's listening, they're like, wait, Julia, why aren't you asking questions on that? Cause that's going to be another show. But I do want to pause for one second because anyone that is in this room and Clint, you can do the same thing. I know we had some issues in the green room, but if you feel comfortable enough, touch your phone. If you go down to those two little lines at the bottom to the left, you'll see something where it says broadcast to the world. And you'll see like, I have like a little globe, like this is going live on you can click this and send it to your friends. You can put it on Facebook. You can put it on, uh, I believe like LinkedIn. I mean, this is being broadcasted on those things, but you can also do that as well to kind of get some of your people that are not in Fireside. This is one of the things that I love about this platform. They can actually click that link that you're sending and listen to this whole whole show, even when they're not in Fireside. So that's what is this great um this, this great platform is all about. And, you know, now, now you're, you're, you're like, well, now my video is all messed up, but you'll, you'll figure it out. But only for a second here, I'm almost. Yeah. So, (laughs) so I mean, the thing is though, also all of that, that you were doing for this uh, ministry, like, as you were saying it, I was like, oh my gosh, it's totally setting you up for what you are going to be doing now and what you're meant to be doing now because of how your life unfolded. And so it's really setting you up for growing what you're doing, which is, is kind of, it gave me chills. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, all that stuff is now exactly what you're going to be, you know, what you have been doing, but now as it grows with your first book. So you met your wife, you're doing, you know, this amazing stuff, your events and all these different things. You're really getting tools under your belt that are going to lead you to the, to your next, um, you know, path. So you guys get married and then kind of take us, take us into that. Yeah. So when we got married, uh, it wasn't long after that, probably about, I don't know, six months to a year, she ended up leaving that particular organization. It just made a lot of sense for us. And so she actually ended up going to work for a medical facility that does some really high end stuff like the Mavericks and stuff like that, all these high end physicals and and those types of things. So she really enjoyed that. So, but then about (laughs) six months to a year, this was the funny thing, Juliet, because we had, we had made an agreement that we really felt like we wanted her to be a stay at home mom but we were just too scared not to have the two incomes. Mm -hmm. And so instead we decided, well, we'll just find other ways to, you know, do quote unquote God's will because we felt like that's what he wanted us to do. And so everything's going well. This is a high end facility. And after one year, they completely had to shut down and fire everybody except for the main doctor and a nurse. 
So we found ourselves, okay, <laughs> give this a go, you know? So she became a stay-at-home mom. At that time, I had uh, the two boys, Gabriel and Joel. We hadn't had Liam yet. And so life began to, you know, just kind of shift. We had really, struggle is probably too wrong, you know, strong of a word, but it was tough because I traveled a lot. You know, I was traveling around the globe. I was gone on average, you know, a couple of weeks out of the month. Um, there were stretches that could be much worse. There were stretches that mm. would be a little bit longer in between, but I was, I was gone a lot, you know, and we didn't get married for me to be, you know, jet setting around the world, even if it was for a good cause, you know, we really felt like we wanted to do things together. So, you know, as a couple, we prayed about that. What ended up being really a couple of years before there came a day where we just, you know, really felt like, okay, that season is up. Mm. And again, I'm going to make the long story short. We, had some really interesting things happen to kind of confirm that. And we were in agreement. So what was crazy about it was I really felt like the instruction I had received was I need to give my organization a 30 day notice, which that was no big deal because I was going to get paid for another 30 days. But then I felt like I was supposed to stay at home for 30 days after that and not even look for work. Mm. Now she's a stay at home mom, right? So that didn't make a lot of sense, but by this point, you know, living a life of faith, God had already been faithful in our mind in so many dramatic ways that we're like, okay, let's do this. This is a little off the beaten path, but let's do it. So ultimately what ended up happening was, you know, when you leave a job, any corporate job, and for those who maybe aren't as familiar with the church world in terms of, you know, the internal side of things, you don't get a severance, <laughs> you know, right. they don't pay you to quit, right? So this whole idea of at the end of 30 days, I've got to do nothing for 30 days and not make money was crazy. Well, two days before I actually had my last day, my boss, who was one of, uh, there was three executive vice presidents that ran this organization that just had different roles. And by then we were really good friends. He came in, he goes, hey man, because I just want to let you know, I was able to go to battle for you and I actually got you four weeks severance pay. So I was wow. just like, Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Cause we were, you know, we were leaving with zero, you know, we were prepared for that. Right. Um, but, I really, but I really feel like, you know, that decision had to be made in that space where we were jumping out in faith. And so then it got even crazier the next day, which was my actual last day, you know, I'm doing the cake thing. I'm, you know, hugging necks and saying goodbye to everybody. And he texted me, he was in Belgium. Actually, he had to leave to go to a a, a venue to check things out in Belgium. He texts me and he goes, make that six weeks. Mm. So now I'm like, Hey, now I got my 30 days plus two weeks. You know, that's pretty sweet. You know? So, so that was cool. You know, that was really cool. So what happened was, so now Juliet, you know, I've, I've got 30 days, I've been traveling all this time. And so we did a bunch of DIY projects together, you know, painted walls and did some things and just hung out with the kids and, just enjoyed life some, but then, you know, 30 days comes, right? And the 30 days seemed like it lasted about a week, <laughs> you know, it was right. just over <laughs> back. You know? mm -hmm. So at the end of 30 days now, you know, I'm allowed to go look for a job. So, you know, I, I felt like, again, I was called to ministry at that stage of my life. And I really felt like it was going to be in some sort of speaking role in some fashion, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't ambitious about that, you know? So most of the jobs that I applied for were back into, you know, the corporate world because I had been doing sales for so long. And then what happened one day was there was a, 
there was a particular ministry down in Louisiana. Now, this is like six months after Katrina. So mm. everybody can kind of remember how bad that was. It was a really awful situation. Mm-hmm. And I see that they're looking for a youth pastor. I was just looking on the website to just check up and see what was going on down there. And I turned to my wife and I said, hey, his name was Jesse Duplan. I said, he's looking for a youth pastor. Joking. <laughs> like totally joking. Because it's Louisiana, Katrina. We live in North Dallas. We're loving it. We just bought a new house, you know, just a couple years before. And she goes, well, shouldn't we let God decide? And I'm like, oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah, we could do that, you know, because there was zero risk. Nobody knew me down there, you know. And plus, by now, I'm like 40 years old. Who wants a 40-year-old with, you know, a youth pastor who, by the way, has never even been to a youth service in his entire life because I didn't even, you know, get involved until I was in my 30s. So I just, I, li- I literally got my resume, hit, I prayed over it like you might bless a bowl of cereal, right? It was that intense. And then I just hit send. I'm like, okay, I did my job, you know, <laughs> thinking right. nothing of that and just moved on. Well, everybody's already probably guessed where this story's going. So ultimately they contacted me. We ended up feeling really honored that they wanted to talk to us. So we flew down, they flew us down and we ended up going on staff at this church. There was just such great need. There was a lot of hurt people, uh, many who had just literally lost loved ones and lost everything they owned. I mean, it was just Mm. really felt like we could go down there and do some good. Now, the reason why I wanted to bring that part up is because I just left you with this whole idea that I had a six week severance, right? So another part of this was when, when I, got hired by them, I really felt, once again, I got very unusual instruction. This has never happened before, never happened since, to not even negotiate my salary. So I literally started doing the job and didn't even know, one, if I was even put on the payroll yet, let alone what that paycheck was going to be. Don't recommend that, (laughs) but that's what I did. Right. And so this goes by, you know, for a couple of weeks. Now, let me point out really quick that that six-week severance that I was given was not paid out in a lump sum. It was paid out over three pay periods. So one day they fly me down, I'm going back and forth literally because we hadn't found a place to live yet in Louisiana. So I'm driving down a couple of times, I'm flying down and they fly me down, they pick me up at the airport and the senior pastor says, hey, by the way, I just wanted to let you know, we already put you on the payroll and I have a check for you. Oh, I'm like, hey, that's you know, great. Wow, great. Right. I'm getting paid. You know, I don't know what, but well, here's what's crazy and why I shared that story. So what nobody knew other than me, because I'd never told them that I had a severance from the other you know, organization, is that the last of the three paychecks from that organization, I received the same exact day that I got mm. the first paycheck from the new organization. So, you know, God just kind of worked it all out and we never even missed a single day. So it was a pretty amazing time of our life. You know, a lot of challenges. Louisiana was a complete disaster. And yet, you know, God was moving. Right. Now, did you so I know you said you had bought the place in Dallas a few years ago. So was there kind of thoughts? Okay, we're going to rent Dallas out to see how long this is and how this works. Or we're going to just sell it and, you know, just jump in with two feet. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, we did wrestle with that. Now you got you got to understand the timeline. If everybody's going to do the math here, this is 2006. 
2007. <laughs> we know where the housing market's about to go, right? Yeah. But when we made this decision, we, we didn't know that yet, you know? And so we ended up actually deciding, well, let's just lease it out mm-hmm. and we can hang on to it and we'll end up having a passive income. And, you know, that was, that was the idea, right? The hope. So we did. Well, that was part of why I said there were some really great things happening and then there were some great challenges. The people that ended up moving in were people that we knew the wife for many years. Uh, she was relatively newly married, didn't know him so much. And it really on paper looked like a real win-win situation. Well, we had no idea. And even she didn't know at the time how bad their situation was because he was hiding some things. Uh, literally the first month, Julia, they were over three weeks late making that payment, mm. you know, and, you know, we're youth, young adults pastors. So we weren't, you know, exactly raking it in. And so it became somewhat of a nightmare and it actually got to one point where they weren't able to pay us for over three months. So it was, a, it was tough. It was a really tough time. You know, um, we could have sued them. We could have done a variety of different things, but we just really felt like we still needed to somehow keep that relationship intact. So eventually, you know, we said, Hey, you have to move out. You know, you, you just have to, you have to go find somewhere cause you can't pay us. And so that's what happened. And we ended up short selling the house. We got some help from family to kind of offset the cost of that. And so that was really, really tough, you know, because when we went to Louisiana, again, post Katrina, anybody who was down there at that time would know this. There was almost no housing. Right. It was very difficult. We couldn't even find a place to rent. There was nowhere to rent unless it was in a place where, you know, you probably want to wear a flak jacket every day you get in and out of the house, you know. Right. So, and and yeah, and yeah. how old were the boys at this time? Yeah. So that was uh, Gabriel and Liam were roughly five and two. So they were very little, you know, very young. And so we ended up having to buy a house in Louisiana. We really, it was the only way this whole thing was going to work. And so that was a, that was a blessing at the time too, you know, until we get into 08 when we wanted to sell this thing in the housing crisis. And then we went through a whole other series of disasters with short sales. So real estate was not our thing back in the, you know, 2006 or 2008. Um, but we moved and we, we had a beautiful home on the bayou. I actually was just joking with someone not before we got on this call about seeing alligators every day and that never getting old, you know. So life was good. You know, we were we were doing what we felt like we were called to do. There was challenges, tough stuff, but there was also blessing in it. Right. And also, you know, thinking about where you came from in California, California and the South are also very different you know, maybe a similar climate, um, but very different values and, and, um, how people kind of do things. But so, I mean, and the kids being five and two, so the oldest will have, you know, had memories like, you know, okay, this is interesting, but I'm watching mom and dad kind of do this and grow something. And as you said, there's some excitement, which is, you know, always it's fun for kids to see like, this is like good stuff. So how long were you guys there? Um, I, I, I mean, I think you said you sold in 2008. What kind of took you away from that? Yeah. So par- part of this story and how we ended up there, my my senior associate pastor at the time of the church when we were still here in Dallas, uh, who was really my mentor, he was not so thrilled when he found out that I had suggested or, or had accepted rather a position mm down Louisiana. And I had no idea that they had been working behind the scenes to find a role for me here. It wasn't a pastor, which, you know, I wasn't driven to be a pastor, but I just didn't know any of that until I had already committed to this. So I left that behind. And honestly, we were good with that. We, we knew we were supposed to go to Louisiana, 
But after a couple of years, what ended up happening was he ended up taking over a church in Seattle, Washington, or near Seattle, that was uh, part of the family of the church here in Dallas. It was autonomous, but they were related. And so he took that over and a couple months into that, which was, you know, latter part of 2007, asked us if we would just come visit, you know? And so we did, we took our own time, uh, vacation time, we went and visited and, and we just all felt like, wow, we're supposed to be here with you now. You know, this was like a dream come true to help them build something because they were our mentors, you know? So we ended up doing, you know, everything right. They, he, he contacted uh, the pastors and founders of the church we were a part of and had a great conversation and, you know, just said, listen, these are our, you know, spiritual kids, if you will. And so mm-hmm. keep them as long as you need them, but let's start moving towards, you know, helping find your replacement. And so we did that. We were there for a little while waiting for them to, you know, make sure that they were in good shape. We didn't just leave them cold. And so they ended up hiring who they wanted to hire. And next thing you knew, we were on our way to Seattle with, this is the, the crazy part of that story, Juliet. So, you know, the time of the year now, houses aren't really selling right this minute. So we just packed everything we could into our suitcases and moved to Seattle, leaving the house staged, all the kids extra toy, everything was there hoping that we could somehow sell that house in the next couple of months. And uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> it, ended up being <laughs> two years, it ended up being almost two years later, actually, that we finally actually was able to short sale that house. So it was a total disaster. But we ended up in Seattle under that premise. Right. And so now were the kids still five and two or was now this like a little bit more? Just a couple of years. So now we're talking probably seven and four uh, but this is when shortly after we'd only been there for maybe about a year, you know, we were done. I don't know if, you know, you guys have ever been through this part of it, but we had the first two and, you know, we had suffered through a miscarriage in between Gabriel and Joel. Um, she has not responded well to pregnancy ever. You know, Gabriel was actually born at three weeks, 12, or, excuse me, um, six weeks early. Mm-hmm. And he was about three pounds, six ounces because she got severe preeclampsia. When Joel came along, he went full term. We escaped that. But then after she was trying to, well, actually when she was trying to go in to uh, deliver him, because she was stuck at two for like 12 hours trying to do natural delivery, the epidural wasn't working. They didn't know what they were going to do. Eventually it finally took. But then when Joel was delivered, I was in there with the room with her and I mean with him and, and you know, he's healthy and I'm excited. Next thing I knew, they pulled me into the room because they actually wanted my help. She wasn't coming out of the anesthesia. Mm. And so that went on for several hours. It was very scary. You know, everybody, you know, had that. The doctors are obviously very professional, but everybody had that look of concern that this is not going right. well. So after that, we were done. <laughs> yeah, like we're done. <laughs> Two's good. Two's a nice, even number. We're done, you know. But about a year into living in Louisiana, I, you know, I could see it. She's picking up babies and, you know. <laughs> Yeah. When babies get to a certain age, I mean, it's really funny because we have three and they're all two years apart, a little less than two years apart. Um, The last two are like a little like, you know, two months older than two years apart, whatever. Um, But I... Like I, I want always wanted to be a mom. Like I, you know, I knew I wanted to stay home with the kids. I babysat from a very young age. I love children, especially babies. Um, and so I remember, and I was our delivery 
was not great. We got pregnant right away. We were very fortunate, but then complicate. Like I was late with every single one. I had emergency cesarean for, you know, the first, and I had a crazy recovery. And, you know, the second was a little bit better, but the doctors were like, it's really not. And I'm like, but it wasn't the first. So it's definitely better because of this third was better. Um, but even when I was pregnant, I was not a nice person. And it's so crazy because I'm a, I, and I'm not tooting my heart. I'm a pretty nice person. I have a pretty, you know, I have a lot of energy, good disposition. I'm a kind person. When I was pregnant, like all of a sudden my husband would be like, I think you're pregnant. And I'd be like, Oh, let me go take a test. Cause I've just became people when right. I, my first, um, I stayed home after the first, but like when I was pregnant, I was obviously with the first I was working. And I remember them being like, you just became like scary. I just became really short. I had no patience for anything or anyone. <laughs> it was really insane. So when we were, he was, uh, my husband's a little bit older than me not much, like four years. But I remember saying like, let's, let's do like after like literally the, our daughter came and I was like, okay, I could do this again. This is amazing. And oh he's like, God. yeah, no, 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 no. So then we ended up, we have two dogs, but I remember at that age, like when they became like, you know, seven months to a year, it was not at seven months, like a, a year to two years. It was like, Oh, I miss like that newborn like right. baby. And so it's just something inside. I think some people like, so I have had friends that were like, Oh, I hated that stage. That's like the worst. I love when they're like, you know, 12 and 13 or, you know, whatever. Um, so it's just very interesting. So she, you could feel that she was like, okay, holding the babies and like, Oh, I really, I don't know if I'm done. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, and to, to her credit, you know, uh, I was lucky. She did. She did not turn mean <laughs> when she was pregnant. <laughs> she just broke a lot of stuff. You know, when she started breaking things, you know, glasses and dishes, I'm like, uh oh, you need right. to go. You need, you need to go get the stick. Something's up. You know. But anyway, so what what happened was I'm watching it. You know, and she didn't really. She didn't push it. She didn't really. You know, much say anything about it. But you could just see it. And so we ended up eventually having a conversation, and my my heart had kind of softened to the idea. So we decided to, you know. Let's see what happens. We'll try for the girl, right? We got two boys, whatever that looks like. I still don't know how you try for that, but we're going to try for a girl. And so that didn't work either. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't create another girl. We created a boy. But what happened was for six months, you know, it seemed like things are going pretty good. You know, I mean, she's had the normal sickness that you get and morning sickness, stuff like that, but nothing serious. And then quite literally, I'm, I'm leaving one morning because all this time has went on. And our house in Louisiana is just not budging. And we'd lived there now for over a year with nothing more than what we had put in a suitcase. Mm. And so we decided we're going to, I'm going to go down. We're going to load, you know, I'm going to work with movers, load the house up. We're going to lease a place up here and we're at least going to normalize our life. And whatever happens with the house happens with the house. So literally I'm, I'm leaving the front door to jump on a flight from Washington to Louisiana. And she's like, yeah, you know, I don't feel the best today, but I'm okay. I'm like, okay, okay. Well, I'll call you when I get there. So Juliet, that's like a, you can't fly direct, or at least in those days from Seattle to, uh, to New Orleans. So it took me about eight, nine hours of travel time to actually land there. So by the time I got there, it was early evening. I get in my rental car. I start driving. I call her and I said, how are you doing? She goes, things have really turned bad. She was already at a mm -hmm. hospital. Her blood pressure had skyrocketed to, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like 220 over 100 something. I mean, it was just really bad. And she's telling me they think they want to take me to this special hospital with an EQ unit. 
and then I may have to give birth tonight. And I'm just like, oh my, you got to be freaking kidding me. You know, right. here I am. I just landed, you know? So literally I drove to a Walmart on the way to our house down there to just grab some quick supplies, told her I would call her when I got there. And by the time I arrived to the house, things had gotten even worse and they were definitely going to transport her. They were planning on giving her a steroid shot, which was really more for what ended up being Liam uh, than her because now, you know, she's only at 27 weeks, you know? Right. So ultimately I was in Louisiana until 7 a.m. the next morning. <laughs> I arrived at like seven o'clock at night and was on a flight at 7 a.m. Took me all day to get back, but I got back in time. The steroid shot did its job. It bought us 48 hours. And so that's really so the, you know, cause obviously at 27 weeks, you're not really anywhere close to fully developed and ready to come out of the womb, but that gives you a better shot with your lungs and your heart. So right. I get back and about a day after I get back, they're like, it's time because by then she had slipped into full blown help syndrome is what it's called. And so that's when literally your major organs are beginning to shut down. And if they don't take the baby, you're going to die. And of course the baby could die too. So they shuffled us into a room and, you know, it was just, I was actually at the, the head, they had a screen, so I didn't see, you know, the, the hard stuff going on with the way they were trying to get him out. Cause he was stuck. I mean, it was just a nightmare. He was stuck. They couldn't get him out. Right. And so they pull out this baby and, you know, he was one pound, 14 ounces. So yeah. it just, it just looked like this little alien. I mean, I don't mean to be, you know, crass. No, we're totally. Yeah. It looks like, you know, it doesn't look like a baby baby, you know? And so they throw me into the specialty unit where they put him in this special cocoon, start hooking up, you know, all the different devices he was going to need to survive. And, you know, I had to leave her in their hands. So it was pretty traumatic, pretty traumatic. Yeah. And this is what kind of began our journey of, you know, having our third child. But and I don't know how far we want to go with the story. Obviously, you know, he's 13 now. He's done really well. He's a black belt martial artist. You know, he's tough as nails. You know, that worked out for us. But these are all stories, you know, that ultimately I think lay a foundation for at least in some ways to be able to handle what we face today. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I was just literally thinking, <laughs> gosh, we could really talk for about five hours. And I know in the beginning of this, you know, show, I had said, you know, what you guys have created out of tragedy. And I'm sure people are thinking that this was the tragedy and it's not. Um, as you just said, you know, Liam is a healthy 13 year old boy. So you guys are now though, and you know, I, we don't need to go into this part. Um, but people know when you have a baby and Nick, you, I mean, the you're in there, you don't, you can't bond. There's, I mean, so many different things that you guys had to go through. Your wife had yeah. to go through as, you know, as her hormones are leaving and that's, you know, tough. I've had friends that this has happened to. Um, and it's a really, you know, like when your breast milk is coming in and you can't, there's so much stuff that your body prepares you as a mom. And then for it to be taken early, your body just goes through in your mind, everything just really goes. So, I mean, remarkable that your wife, uh, you know, it obviously came on out on the, the right side, but the thing that the one question I do want to ask is, I mean, when this is all going on, you now have also you're older too. So how old are they when? Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, uh, let's see, Gabriel had to have been about eight years old and Joel would have been about five. And so, right. and actually let me add to it based on what you just said, because there's so many layers even to this story. 
This was also during the H1N1 uh, virus, which we don't remember that quite as well just because of how devastating COVID was. But the rules, everything was pretty much the same. So for two and a half months, every single day, we had to go down. Well, we didn't have to, but we obviously wanted to, to go see him. But we were the only two. No, the boys couldn't meet him. The grandparents, aunts and uncles, nobody but the two of us could even see him for two and a half months that he was in the NICU. So there were many times that Gabriel and Joel, literally we'd you know, go down there with them and they'd sit in the the waiting area and, you know, just sit and try to keep themselves occupied while we went and visited with Liam for a couple of hours and delivered milk. And that's a whole other issue, you know, cause as you said, right. her body wasn't producing like it would have, if it had been longer. And so there was just, you know, there was a myriad of challenges that went along with that. Right. I mean, and, and as we, you know, anyone that's joining just now, uh, we have Chris Hatton on. He is the author of Big Bold Brave. You can find his website, bigboldbrave.us. You can also find him on all the socials. Um, Clint has had, did I say Chris? Oh, don't No, worry. I said Clint. Chris Glenn. No, but did I? <laughs> no, but all of a sudden I was like, wait, did I say Chris or did I say Clint? Say Chris one time, but it's okay. I knew you were going to Okay, okay sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I was like, wait a second. Um, as I came out. But so Clint has had... I mean, you've lived kind of <laughs> for about 15 people. I mean, from where you were as a child, parents getting divorced, then your drug use until 30. I mean, and, and you know, first marriage, meeting your wife, finding God, um, you know, going to a ministry down after Katrina. I mean, there's so many different things when someone puts this out. And this is why stories really connect us because there's going to be people that are listening to the story that are going to connect with different parts. Um, and I always, you know, I'll have people, clients, podcast guests that will say like, well, my story is really not that big of a deal because of, you know, they'll hear someone's story like yourself and they're like, well, I mean, I've just, you know, I had to, like a little thing over here, but it doesn't matter how big someone's story is. Um, and I, I love the big, bold, brave. Cause I think that's not just for the tragedy that happened in your life, but I think that you've kind of lived a big, bold, brave life, your entire life. Um, and, and then bringing your wife into it as well. Um, I think it's really important for people to hear and also understand that just because their story is not as tragic or they haven't had as many layers, right? There's the layers part doesn't mean insignificant. It, it, it's happened to you. And that is important because what happens to you shaped you to be a certain person. So, um, you know, Clint, it, it is, you have had so many layers and we haven't even gotten to, you know, what really kind of connected us as well. Um, but Can I say one thing to that, Juliet, you know, please. I'm, I'm glad you said that, you know, people may think this sounds strange, but that's how I always saw myself too. Really? You know, I, I know there, I'm, I mean, when I sit back and I think, but if I write a list, wow, that looks like a lot, you know, <laughs> but, I, but I didn't feel that way, you know, over the years, I didn't see myself as this person who's been through all this stuff and all, you know, had all these either just really difficult challenges or in some cases a tragedy. You know, it really wasn't until, you know, more where we are today that in, in my search to help people and we don't have to go there yet, but I just have realized, you know, gosh, you know, I guess I really do have a lot of different experiences that I could really have empathy and compassion for people and, and be able to help them. But I'm only saying that right now because, yeah, comparing stories is such a bad idea. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that can, you don't need to compare it to anything. I hear all kinds of people's story and I think, oh my gosh, I haven't been through anything. 
Right. (laughs) Right. But that's, I mean, again, you know, universe, God, um, God was preparing you for, you know, what happens later in your life. Um, because if you didn't have some of the other challenges and, and this is just my opinion, but you know, and I think when people, if something really tragic happens and they've never had anything happen in their life, it Mm -hmm. takes them down, and again, this is just my, my opinion. I just feel like it takes them down. Um, and I don't want to say more because that's not, I, you know, I'm not saying that you, you know, haven't been taken down and suffered, but, um, I just think that it is, it is different. And so I do want to touch on, so when your youngest was in the NICU, did you have any of those experiences where it was like, we don't know if he's going to make it like how many times did that happen? Or, I mean, I'm sure he was born at one pound. So yeah. If you could take us through that a little bit. Yeah, well, really too many to count. And I don't don't say that for the sake of being dramatic. It's just anybody who experienced this, uh, you know, they hook up, you know, all the different devices because what's happening at 27 weeks and up until, you know, you're another couple months down the road, their brain is still learning to communicate with all of the major organs. And so one of the scariest things that happens is something that's, there's a, uh, they shorten it by calling it a Brady episode. There's a medical term for it. I won't try to uh, pronounce, but a Brady episode is just simply when the uh, devices that they have hooked up pick up on the fact that they're forgetting to breathe. Mm-hmm. Like literally their body just doesn't even know to breathe because there's not that constant connection between the brain and lungs. And so what happens is, is this bell will start going off, you know, and back in those days, I used to call it the bell from hell because, you know, every time that thing went off, which was several times a day, every day. Mm-hmm. And in the, of course, this was a huge NICU unit as well. So it was the, it was actually the biggest one in the state of Washington, which was good in some ways because they were set up for it. But you also had like 50 other of these, you know, cubicles around the space. And so you could hear other people's bells going off too. So, you know, it was really stressful. But that mm. bell would start going off and you're just like, okay, come on, come on, come on. And I don't remember, you know, how long you could let the bell go. It seemed like way too long. <laughs> but right. but you know, what would happen is, is if, if he didn't self-correct within a pretty short amount of time, then a nurse would come over and they would nudge him through plastic gloves, you know, because he was in a isolated container the entire time, um, just trying to rouse him. And of course, you know, he did. But yeah, it was, it was frightening every single time that thing went off and there's always something in the back of your head. Is this, is this it? Right. And you know, and I have to say, this is going to sound so random, but I babysat when I was 12, 11, 12, 13, around there, our neighbors were uh, two um, twins and they were preemies and they came home with that bell. This was, I mean, they're in their thirties now. So they came home with that bell. And I remember my family lived right across the street, the mom. And I mean, they had just gone through this ordeal, right? They were exhausted. They just wanted to have one night out. And they're like, they're strong enough. But if that bell goes off, you need to really, and it was Alexandra, really, that was the one that was a little weaker. And I just remember I was telling someone that story, her head head fit in my hand. And they were like, wait, how old were you? And I was like, now, listen, I, I have a lot of siblings. I was really good with kids. My mom was literally right across the street. Um, 
but you know, these, these, this, these parents were like, we just need a night out. We just need a night out. We trust that you're going to do it. But I remember I talk about that bell and I don't recall if it ever went out. I feel like it did go off. Cause I remember being like, you know, a kid being like, I'm just, I'm not going to even sit down. I'm just going to stare at these little, <laughs> these little, little yeah, yeah. birds. I used to call them little birds and I'd be like, I'm going to call them, you know, and if it went off, I would be like, huh, huh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. I mean, and so this is obviously they were in the NICU for months and months, months, they were strong enough to go home, but they still had those bells. So I remember those bells. Um, but being a parent, I never had to, you know, go through that. So I mean, you guys went through that. When did he come home? And if you can take us through that story before we then, you know, continue on? Yeah, so so that goes on for quite a while. And so it was about two and a half months later, he needed to get to Oh, my memory fails me a little bit. It was like four or five pounds. So it was still very small, but there mm -hmm. was, there was a marker that he had to reach. He finally did. And then we also, uh, just like you described, they sent us home with the device to, to monitor with the bell. I don't remember him having it once we went home because he had pretty much stopped doing it by the time they sent us home. Um, but I do remember taking it home and hoping that you know, right. now, now we're at the house, we're a 35 minute drive from the hospital. This thing better not go off. Right. Right. But you know, we went through that. And so by then, of course, Joel and Gabriel meet him for the first time. So that was exciting. But at the same time, you know, it was just, it was really tough. And so and exhausting. I'm sure you guys were probably exhausted. Yeah, we were. And you know, this is a, not really a rabbit trail, but you know, this was just kind of our life at that time, you know, I had taken on other roles as well. So I was the youth, young adults pastor, you know, I, at some point in time during the seven years that we were in Washington, and most of this was after Liam, I led pretty much every department except for accounting at some point, you know. So there was all this responsibility too, and you're feeling guilty because, you know, obviously your priority is to your to your bride and your baby. And but at the same time, you know, I don't want to let everybody down. And so you know, we were kind of dealing with all that stuff and Amaryllis really couldn't help. I mean, all she could do at that time was recover and, and, you know, nurture Liam the best she could. So that was all going on. You know, I actually, we don't need to talk about the book right now, of course, but in the book, I actually talk about collaboration because what ended up happening during that, that was kind of beautiful. And I think it speaks to even as a family, um, what you're, alluding to that I think is true that there were things that helped us develop some muscles for mm -hmm. even harder things. I realized that, okay, I'm a bit of a control freak with certain things. I need to just release my, my team to just run with things and not have to, you know, bypass so many things off of me. We need to collaborate on a greater level than we ever had. I need to just trust. So all that was mixed up in this too. And that ended up changing my life. Because yeah. by the time we got to where we really could come back, which was, you know, a few months um, before I could really come back into my role and truly have the full capacity again, I no longer needed to do any of those things because the leaders that we had, which were all like young adult age, were just killing it. And frankly, they didn't need me to do a lot of the stuff anymore that I thought I had to do. And so that even became true with, you know, Gabriel and Joel, even though they were pretty young. You know, they were doing stuff around the house and helping mommy out. And, you know, we worked more as a team to kind of get through it. And so even though it was a hard time, it was it was pivotal. And it was really something that I think, you know, in the long term helped us tremendously as a family unit, be able to handle the gut punches of life. 
Right. Which I think is really true. So, okay. So he comes home. You guys are in Seattle. When did you then move back to Texas? And so I know that there's going to be like a a space because we're going to go from when they're like 10 to then, you know, how you created this, you know, your whole coaching and, and your book. Well, so Liam did really well, you know, for two years while we were still there, because when we had him, we were there for almost another six years, like five, six years. Um, They had always predicted, you know, doctors saying this could happen, that could happen. We had to go meet with a doctor like every actually four doctors uh, on a regular basis for like two years. Mm -hmm. Aced everything, never had any kind of the cognitive speech issues, any of that kind of stuff. So life was really pretty stable for several years there. Ultimately, what ended up happening, Julia, is that we were up there for seven years. Now, you, your listeners already know now, I'm from sunny Southern California. We spent years here in very sunny Texas and sunny Louisiana. And my wife is Puerto Rican. She was born in Puerto Rico, didn't move to Florida until she was 12. And then she was in Florida. Right. So the gray, <laughs> the gray <laughs> and miss just began, it was like waterboard treatment to us, right? It was just like this right. thing. And so that honestly was a huge part in us just desiring that, you know what, plus all of our family, you know, really was between Texas and Florida. Um, we still have beautiful friendships to this day in Washington, but we just felt like we want to go back. So we had a lot of conversations with the pastors that we worked for over the course of months, just again, make sure that this is the right decision at the right time. And ultimately, we came to that conclusion. And so we moved again blindly. So this was another one of those, we didn't have a promise of anything coming back here to, to where we live here in McKinney, Texas, which is just outside of Dallas. Um, but we, we knew we wanted to make that move. And so we did. And so you'll laugh at this, you know, because by now we've got three kids, right? And I'm, I think I'm not quite 50 yet, but I'm getting close to 50 at that point. So we had to move in with parents for two and a half months. <laughs> <laughs> And listen, you know, now they, uh, my, my father-in-law is a, a pretty high level pain management physician, runs a very large facility. So they're, they're, you know, financially very well off. And so space wasn't an issue. They had tons of room. They have a big house. Um, but you don't plan in your late forties with three kids to move back home. It's just not really on anybody's goal radar. Right. And so, that went on for like two and a half months. We really thought like with our experience and with our old church, which now had spread out over five different cities, that something was going to happen really quick. And it, and it didn't happen that way. And so we, we spent two and a half months, kids going to, you know, new schools. And it, our, my father and mother-in-law are amazing people. Um, we're very, very fortunate. So we do have a good relationship but it's still created stress. Right. Totally. And I mean, just, I mean, it's again, it's the unknown, but also I think about what a great experience for your kids and the grandparents, right? They get to be together in this really wonderful kind of time, um, which, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you are right. It was beautiful, but then it was just, I mean, Liam was little, Joel was still pretty little, a lot of energy. It was a lot for them to take. Right, 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 right. Three boys. I mean, and when people always say boys, my daughter was, I think, more active than even the boys were. So I I hate that stereotype. But if you have an active kid, it doesn't matter if they're a boy or a girl. Yes, 
generally girls sit in color. None of my kids did. I didn't. We were not that type of family. We were up and moving. So we were always running up and down the hallway or, you know, running this way, jumping on here, jumping there. So, right. So it was a lot of energy for your, for your in-laws. Absolutely. Yeah. And for us, you know, you didn't want them to break anything and it's all that stuff. Right. So, but you know, a couple months go by and eventually, you know, things did, the doors opened up for us to actually go on staff back with the church that we were originally just a part of here in Dallas, only at their McKinney campus, which is right where we wanted to live. So ultimately those things worked out. And so we started a new journey, you know, here. And so that journey, you know, went on for about five years and, you know, the boys were doing well, they were thriving. It was during this time that my oldest son, Gabriel, his passion for aviation really began to kick in. You know, I think he was about eight when he went up in a plane with his uncle Danny for the first time, you know, he just, it was like, you know, I don't know if you're this way, but I've got to have my morning coffee. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, that's, that's my meth now, you know, <laughs> I mean, right, it's like, right. you, gotta have it, you know, and that's kind of how right. it was. With him. You know, he went up that one time and I was like, I've got to do this, you know? Mm, so amazing. that was all happening during this time too. And uh, I don't know if we want to jump into that part of the story yet, but ultimately. Yes. You know, yeah. Yeah. So by now, you know, things are moving, going well. Again, life is pretty good, you know, and everybody's healthy. Liam's healthy. Joel's healthy. Gabriel's healthy. So Gabriel starts high school and at 14, he enters an aviation program. He's a ninth grader. Now that's pretty unusual. There's really only a couple of school districts in the country that have a four-year aviation educational program. Right. So again, this is another one of those things where we're feeling like, Oh my gosh, how fortunate are we? You know, how blessed are we that this, this worked out, you know, and for us, God knew this and this is amazing. Um, That same year he joined an aviation club. It was called Tango 31 Aero Club. That's simply uh, a small club that was created by a guy who, you know, has been in the aviation industry for decades. He's kind of a salty old guy. Love him to death. Some of your listeners actually may know who he is because he's actually famous. And yeah, he just he's clapping down the, in the audience here. One, one of the listeners is, and I got to get close because I, I say no, Radak, um, and I'm sorry if I pronounce your name wrong, Radak. He's he's clapping, so he's uh, I think he knows. You may know where this is going. So his his name is Kevin Lacey, and where your listeners may be familiar with him is he was one of the stars of Airplane Repo, which was a show that ran on I know Discovery Channel. I want to say it was on something else as well. So he's he's pretty well known, but he wanted to help kids. He wanted to help. He, he always had to work for everything. So he wanted to help teenagers dream and, and become pilots or aircraft maintenance, if that's what they mm-hmm. wanted to do. So same thing, this freshman year, another just amazing opportunity opens up, right? It's like, he's absolutely certain he wants to be a pilot. So we begin that everything's good. Uh, and then by the time he's 16, now he's you, you have to earn airtime with Tango, th- <clears throat> excuse me, 31 through sweat equity. So they're literally doing oil changes. And eventually, as they get more skilled, they're doing, you know, engine maintenance. And p- they had new planes brought in in pieces and putting planes together. I mean, it was really an amazing thing. Yeah, really. So he was one of the founders of it, you know, one of the founding members of it. So he became a leader. And so he got opportunities to start going up with a, you know, flight instructor which was totally free, <clears throat> totally free, by the way. Kevin set this thing up to where we literally paid $50 a year and he had free flight instructing, 
They got their fuel for wholesale costs. I mean, it was just an incredible blessing, right? Opportunity. So he's 16, got skilled enough before he even had his driver's license. He soloed, which I remember we were both there. We're filming it, you know, (laughs) because we're probably going to start talking about fear now, right? There's obviously there's fear layered into different parts of my story that I had to overcome. He gets in the plane. He takes off for the first time by himself. And I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, one of your kids who's an athlete, if you're an athlete or whatever, you know, you got that nervous energy, but you're just so excited because you just think something great's about to happen, you know? And so he gets up there and I'm just thinking, man, this is amazing. And then it hits you. He has to land this thing, <laughs> you know? Right. And I remember excitement shifting to like almost terror. You're like, oh my gosh, what have we done? You know, he's going to have to land this thing. And so it was kind of scary too. And his very first landing comes down and just, as he liked to say, like butter, he just landed so smoothly, you know? So he was on his way. He was on his way and doing really well. Um, By the time he was 17. So, you know, here in the States, you cannot earn a private pilot's license certificate until you're 17 years old. So he had to wait until he was 17, studied the exam, you know, the book, anybody's ever seen it. It's like, you know, our old phone books back in the day in LA that were about eight inches thick, you know? And he passes the test first time out mm. and then the written. And then he takes the check ride, which is probably the most intense in terms of just nerves, aces it. And he becomes a pilot. Literally. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it had to have been such like, you know, for you to have really struggled to find yourself until you were in your 30s to be like, wow, this is pretty remarkable that my kid, you know, and also feeling good about yourself. Like these are the routes that I've given him. He's seen us travel around. He's seen us, you know, find different things, be in different States. I've given him those opportunities. Um, you know, your wife and you've given him those opportunities and to be so like, this is what I want to do had to been a very, um, like as a parent, like, Oh my God, I'm really proud. I'm proud of him, but also a little proud of myself that like I've helped yeah. him kind of nurture this. <laughs> You'll probably relate to this. I was mostly proud I didn't break him. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Because <laughs> a, a lot of it, you know, Juliet, not to discount, you know, we I feel like we definitely had done some good things with our kids and we've always taught them to dream big and all those things for sure. Um, but I really felt like, you know, with him, he just he was such a unique personality. I mean even from very early on, four or five years old, his communication skills were incredibly strong, like too strong. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you got, it's one thing once they're teenagers and they think they know everything and they can communicate it. When they're only five or six, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, what? Right. What, are you, what are you saying? So we had some of that, you know, always thought he would be a CEO because he had to be in charge of everything. Like we just knew he's never going to be able to work for anybody, you know? And then, the other thing was a lawyer, right? Because he loved to argue and mm-hmm. facts didn't necessarily get in the way. Oh, I think we lost, we lost you for a second. That I so admire even now as his dad, some that I didn't even fully appreciate to be totally honest with you while he was still with us. Um, he was just adventurous. He attacked life. If he wanted to do something, he, he taught himself how to play guitar. You know, he wanted to learn guitar. He didn't even know he was doing it. When I were sitting in the living room and I hear this, and I wish I could remember the song. It was like Led Zeppelin or, you know, somebody. I hear this guitar riff that I'm, you know, familiar with. Looked at her and like, did you hear that? She's like, 
yeah, that sounded live. I'm like, it did. So we go to his room and he's in there jamming on this electric guitar. We're like, when did you learn guitar? <laughs> you know? Right. That's so cool. Well, and you'll laugh at this because this is our kids today. Like, There's so much, I don't know, I'm not going to overgeneralize for everybody else. There's so much braver and more intentional than I was at that age. He's like, oh yeah, YouTube. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? Right. Well, so so he, all- yeah, he had it. He definitely had a like forward thinking kind of entrepreneur, like, you yeah. know, which again, because of your background, um, you know, not really kind of finding yourself and clean of drugs until you're 30, that just had to been also like a little bit of an, like an, ah, like, oh, this kid is fascinating. Like, I'm fascinated by him. Um, so, yeah. you know, he gets his pilot license. He's 17. How many times did he, would he go out by himself? Like, were, were you guys always like, okay, I want to be on the airfield somewhere or like connect or like, was, was it like pure freedom? Yeah. We let him be free. You know, we let him be yeah. free just to back up just one tiny second. You know, I think the other thing throughout the years that we did, especially when you start talking about my story is I didn't hide that from my kids. Right. My boys know my story. They know every little detail of my story. And so, you know, they were always aware of where certain decisions could lead you that would be very positive and, you know, things could lead you down a different road. And so, you know, so he chose a lot of, a lot of good decisions, some not so good. He also liked to drive too fast, but he did, he, you know, he, he started flying. And once he started soloing at that point, it's really just about hours. So he got his license. He's just getting hours. He's doing well. Um, you know, Kevin and all the guys that kind of surround that with the flight instructors are just super impressed of how well he's doing. And so that ultimately leads us to the night of September 23rd, 2019. So by now he's about three months shy of his 18th birthday. Uh, Again, you know, it's all about the hour. So he had a mom of one of his best friends reach out to him here in McKinney and say, Hey, listen, are you willing to take her to Arkansas today? Because she was attending the university of Arkansas, but here in McKinney for of all things, a funeral that weekend. And she said, you know, can you take her up there so she can miss a lot less classes? And of course he's all gung ho. Right. Uh, it was, was going to include night flying on the way back, which is, you know, some of what he was needing to train in. And so that was very normal for a pilot. So he did, he took her and, you know, thank goodness they arrived safely and he dropped her off, said goodbye to a few other friends that were going to school there. And then he jumped back in the plane and headed home. He had just started a brand new job the day before with a friend and uh, that friend's dad, he was loving it, you know, just start. He had just started taking some classes, too, because he graduated a year early. You know, just I mean, life was just everything was right there, Juliet. I mean, right. it's just he's living the dream, literally. And on the way back, he got about 20 minutes uh, from Fayetteville where he took off and ran into the The NTSB is the one who does the investigations on all um, plane crashes. It would take us two painful years to get the report. But what ended up happening was he encountered an unexpected weather system going through a mountainous range there, and he ended up losing his horizon. He suffered from what they call spatial disorientation. Mm-hmm. Um, your listeners are familiar with that, even if they don't know the term. You know, Kobe Bryant's wreck, yeah. <clears throat> globally famous, right? Exactly what happened to his pilot who had, you know, decades of experience in a multi-million dollar aircraft. It can happen right. to anybody at any time. And it did. And he, mm-hmm. and he, he crashed and he lost his life chasing his dream. Now. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I have a 17 year old, so I just, 
you know, again, all the life, excuse me for getting emotional, but all the life that you had lived, you know, with almost losing the baby and then, you know, almost losing yourself, your mother, you know, like so many different things. And then now seeing this kid that has, you know, again, we all make mistakes, but like living the dream and I mean, being at the top of his, his life, the top of his world, and then his life being taken from him. Yeah. Um, I can't even imagine, and I hope I never have to No, you know, I just, I, I hope I never have to. Um, but when did you guys find out? So was he supposed to be home at a certain time and you know, he didn't, he didn't call in and then you, you know, you kind of think, well, what's going on? How did that yeah. unfold? Yeah. Well, so what happens is, you know, Kevin, uh, his, his mentor tracks any of the, any of the pilots because there's some other kids that were flying at that time as well. So he tracks them on an iPad device. So what happened was I had actually went out to run some errands. Don't even know what they were. Uh, came back to the house about eight o'clock in the evening of the 23rd and saw my wife on the phone. And, you know, there's just something innate in all of us, right? When you just see your spouse or a relative or a friend or whatever, and you can just tell by the tone of their voice and their, their facial expression that, oh my gosh, what, what's going on? You know, I, so I, I see this look on her face and, I'm like, you know, whispering, you know, what? Right. what? And uh, she ends up kind of mouthing, it's Kevin. And so, you know, who my, my heart just kind of stopped because that was not normal. That was not standard operating procedure. Right. So I'm, I'm half listening to, you know, her side of the call and recognize that something obviously had happened. So she hangs up and he, you know, he went off the radar. Uh, Kevin could not track him. He was not answering his cell phone. Um, now we would later find out shortly after that he, where he did crash was in a very remote area that had virtually no cell phone coverage. So within a, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, that wasn't necessarily the worst news. Like that didn't mean that he was not okay. You know, right. we just knew he went down somewhere and nobody knew where he was. So when, because, you know, you hear people that have lost a loved one or something has happened that they have sometimes this, this, this feeling like, mm -hmm. okay, no, this is a bad feeling. And, and, or, you know, something has happened. Did you guys have that feeling? Not early. And, um, you know, because you asked the question the way you did, I'm going to back up and give you a little bit of background from that morning because it's, uh, it's something Juliet, honestly, I still can't totally wrap my mind around of what it meant. Mm -hmm. Um, but what happened the morning of, this is long before he ever, you know, took off. I, I used to walk a lot in those days. This is before I started getting into, you know, back into weightlifting and hit. So I'd walk like 10 miles a day. I was walking all the time. Went for a walk that morning. And as I was walking along, you know, we've all experienced this. You can describe it different ways. You can call it, you know, really vivid daydream, or you can call it a vision, whatever you want to call it. I was walking past a golf course and then all of a sudden, like, you know, all my surroundings just disappeared and I was just in my imagination, if we could just say it that way. Yeah. And the scene was playing through like it would in a dream, but I'm walking. And in this state, whatever it was, uh, I, I'm running around my house. I'm back in my house. And I'm running around the house, clearly in a panic of some kind. And I, I run out the front door and I go to get, we have a very close neighborhood here where we have very close relationships with our neighbors. And I was running across the street to go find two of the ladies that we live across the street from so that I could have them take Joel and Liam because I had terrible news to give 
Amaryllis about Gabriel. Mm. Now in this, I didn't see anything about what that or, or even boom, as fast as it came. Next thing I know, I'm aware of my surroundings again. And I'm walking by the, you know, the golf course still. And I'm thinking, well, that was really weird, you know? And, um, you know, when something like that happens, Julie, I don't think too many parents are unique. We all have fearful thoughts. We all have crazy right. things we dream or just randomly think about. So in the moment, I just thought, oh, no, no, fear, <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> I am not going to right. give any fear. And I did. I said, I said a simple prayer. I remember doing that of just protection over him and our family and, you know. And did you know he was flying that day anyways? Like, so could it have been, you know, sometimes if we know, you know, and I, and I do this and I hate sometimes that I do this, but like, if my husband or my kids are going somewhere, I like, you know, will be like, okay, what if this happens? You know, and I, and, and then I have to push it away because I know that they're going on this journey. So you knew that he was going on this journey or did you not? Well, he was flying almost every day. Okay. So I don't remember if in that moment, I, I remember I wasn't thinking about he was going to be in a plane crash. That was for sure. You know, I just, right. again, it didn't show me anything, but the only reason I'm sharing that is because that happened. It just, it right. happened. And so fast forward. So now, you know, we're, we're into the evening. We're about in maybe an hour into knowing that he'd went down and a series. Now that, again, Julia, this is a very layered story that went on for several hours. So I'm just going to give you highlights or lowlights. But ultimately, I'm making a phone call to the sheriff department that was in charge of search and rescue because I want to make a personal contact with him. So I did. And they're telling me there's no cell phone coverage. We cannot confirm anything, even though there was a news network from Fayetteville because we were tracking that on our on our phones. I think it was ABC or NBC local um, that had reported at least the crash. I'm like, well, how do they know about the crash? You know, right. They're like. We can't tell you anything. Okay. So an hour or two goes by and, you know, we're doing everything that we know to do at that point. So to answer your question, you know, we, we were still holding out all hope that we just couldn't reach him and right. that he was okay somehow. And so we, we prayed, we declared scriptures, we turned on worship music. I mean, we did all the stuff that, you know, if you call yourself a person of faith that, that you feel like this is what I need to do. You know, we did all that stuff and really felt like somehow, some way, there's no freaking way our story can end with this or, or how right. this in it, you know, even though we've been through stuff, it's like, this can't happen. Right. So we stayed, you know, um, confident that that was not going to be what happened. And how old and the boys are yeah so now they're uh liam is nine joel is 14 so he's now a freshman in high school and they are asleep in their bedrooms and have no idea what's going on and and as as brothers are they like super super connected close are they you know just normal and um what was there if you can just give us a little yeah. insight in their relationship yeah absolutely so you know gabriel and joel are the closest they're only three years apart and they were like <laughs> sibling mortal enemies until about six months before this night. You know, they, I mean, they were just constantly fighting and Gabriel would bully him and, you know, all that stuff. But then, you know, about six months before, give or take, they actually took a trip. They would take an annual trip for spring break with the grandparents, the same ones that we lived with for a little mm -hmm. while. 
And they took this one trip where they went up into the mountains. They, they own a cabin in North Carolina. Uh, Gabriel could drive at that time. So they were driving a Jeep and they became buddies. Mm. It's just their, their relationship, the tone of it, the way they treat each other just dramatically changed like over a weekend. That's and so by the time this night happened, you know, they, they were buddies. They were buddies. Mm. Uh, now, Liam, of course, you know, he was eight years younger than Gabriel. So they definitely had a good relationship, but there was, a, you know, a, a very different relationship. Very different. Yeah. You know, very different. And Gabriel, by that time, you know, as I've already described, he's going to school, he's at the airport a ton. So he's in and out a lot. Liam doesn't see him all the time. Right. So that was a little bit different. Right. Oh, so, right. So they're sleeping. They have no idea. And then when did you get the confirmation that, you know, he had passed? So it, it went on throughout the night and there was even nuances to that, you know, because I, I began seeing reports from the news that would have just a little bit more information. And I'd call the Washington state uh, County Sheriff back and they would still say the same thing. We don't know how they're getting information. There's no cell phone coverage, blah, 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 blah. Then about one, one thirty in the morning, actually about 1 a.m., I was, again, looking at my phone and I saw that the local, and again, I forgive me, but it was ABC, NBC, whoever, yeah. reported a, not just the crash, but a single person fatality. Mm. So that's how you found out? Not, not yet exactly. I'm pausing because this part gets me. Right. Um, and my heart sank like you can only imagine unless you've been through it and i'm sitting right next to amaryllis on the couch we were on the couch at that time and it was in that moment the reason why i paused for a moment it was in that moment that i remembered this crazy thing earlier in the yeah, morning right and i just remember thinking julia it's like you it's hard for me not to want to cuss right now you can um, cuss you can are cuss you, are you looking, kidding me you know is that what that was all about that i'm i'm you know, talking to God at that point is like, are you preparing me to have that conversation? You know, and all these crazy thoughts are just going through my head, but I'm looking at this screen that says my son's dead. And I just, I was devastated. I sat there for what seemed like forever. It was probably really only a moment or two. And uh, I just remember turning to her and saying, baby, he didn't make it. And uh, we went through hell. We, as you can imagine, we sobbed and snot coming out of our nose and, you know, as much as we could to try and keep it down so our, you know, boys wouldn't hear it in their rooms. And, you know, it was, it was incredibly painful. And so when I, before I, before I told her and I saw it, I did immediately text my mother-in-law, her mom, and my father-in-law, who same grandparents I've been talking about that live about 45 minutes from us. They had been up doing the same thing, you know, tracking what they could track. And I told them, you need to get here now. So they were on their way. Yeah. Well, about 1.30. So now this is about a half an hour after this has taken place and we're just, you know, crying our eyes out because we think it's over. I get a knock on the door. And I go to the door and it's two fully uniformed city of McKinney police officers. And of course, you know, we've all seen, if we've never experienced it, we've all seen a movie where something like this happens, right? So I'm thinking, oh my God, this is it. They're coming to give me, you know, the official news. I step out and the night just became confusing again. 
quite literally what happened was they pulled me out and they started asking me for my contact information because they wanted to be able to give it to the county sheriff who I'd already spoken to three times at this point. And every single time before I ended the call, I had made sure, again, this is Clint Hatton. Here's my phone number, blah, blah, blah. Turns out they didn't know anything other than there was a crash and they were only at my doorstep at 1.30 a.m. to get my contact info. So I was pissed. You know, I was pissed. I was confused. I'm like, what the heck is going on? Why is the news reporting this? And you guys all act like you don't even know what's happened. So I made another call right. and, and they're still telling me, we don't know where the news is getting their information. We can neither confirm nor deny anything other than we do have people on site. So at that point, you know, Juliet, we felt like, okay, maybe it's not over. Maybe there's still a chance. Maybe they're wrong, you know? So we went kind of back into that. We just started praying again. And, you know, I mean, at that point, you're, you're willing to pray anything you can think of. So we're even praying resurrection. You know I mean? If, if he's dead, bring him back. I mean, we were just, you're, you're in that place as a parent at this point where you're just praying the most extreme things you can think of because you don't want to go through this, you know? Um, I mean, that, that had to been, I mean, just right. And again, we, you know, we hear things of the news does this, the news does that. And I mean, the anger, because now you're, the emotions that you must have been having must have been insane. I mean, I can't even imagine, but also as the, you know, the husband, the man, all those generalizations of, you know, trying to make sure that everything is okay, that, you know, your wife's okay, but you're trying to struggle with, with this. I just, I, I can't even comprehend. I mean, it must've been such an outer body experience. Yeah. Um, and again, I want to bring it back to your, to your, what you went through in life. Um, and as you said, right, like this can't be the way, this is the way my story is and his story is ending. How is this the way he's ending? But the one thing I do want to bring up, and I know I've just said a lot of stuff. Um, the one thing I do want to say is that you said that he lived such an adventurous full life. Um, and that he was this, this kid that knew what he wanted. And, um, and it just brings me back to, you know, kind of picturing him and then seeing you guys there. And I just, I, I can't even, I can't even again, comprehend it. So did you start yelling at the police officers? Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a fair question for sure. You know, I mean, I just realized, first of all, I've always had a, a very strong sensitivity to what our police officers and first responders go to. So, uh, for me, paying them respect is just a normal part of my life. Uh, you know, I knew they, it wasn't their fault, you know. Um, but I but I was pretty pissed. And when I called the sheriff's department that was in charge of the investigation, you know, I, I didn't yell, but I was very angry and I was stern. I'm like, I don't understand why, why is there so much communication confusion on this? And, you know, of course, the person I was speaking to that was actually at the the office didn't well, either didn't know anything or, or just wasn't willing to say, which ultimately is where we're going to go, Juliet. Um, so this is at one We're back to thinking maybe there's a chance. And then at 3.30 a.m., I received my first call from the sheriff's department. And it was to confirm that they had a coroner on site and that he was <sighs> officially confirmed as dead. And how many hours was that after? So that would have been uh, seven, about seven hours. Oh my gosh. So it was, you know, and, and of course my in-laws were here. So it was kind of round two, 
you know, round two. Of, right. Um, of, of the, um, mm-hmm. it, well, I was going to say, I mean, I guess, right. If you think about it from their side, they don't want to say something because if it wasn't him, could you imagine like, you know, so they have to be very careful and what they, what, what they're doing. But as the people on the other side, you just want answers. Now you want to know, um, which is, which is devastating. Yeah. As it turned out, it was actually just a policy, you know, that uh, they would not notify any next of kin until the coroner has put their stamp of approval on it. And so everybody that was on site knew he was dead, you know, from the, just the sheer, uh, force of, of the crash itself, but they just weren't going to tell me until the coroner said, you know, yes, it's official. So that's why a lot of times, you know, we tell this story by now we're into Tuesday, the 24th, but he, he officially died on the evening of the 23rd. Right. Right. I mean, so, I mean, and so the boys are still sleeping Correct. Yeah. at this point. And I can't imagine when they wake up how, how that conversation went. You know, I had some time, um, which in retrospect, you know, I'm certainly thankful that they didn't wake up on their own and come out because that ultimately I didn't wake them up until seven thirty, So that gave me about four hours for us to just cry and, you know, process and, and try to wrap our minds around what had happened, which, you know, we didn't do in that moment. It, you can't, um, but at least you have a little bit of time to think. And <clears throat> so what ended up happening was when, when I brought them out, and set them down. Of course, it's already, you know, the atmosphere is charged. I'm sure we looked like crap. You know, I can only imagine how puffy our eyes were and they were bloodshot red and everything else. And, you know, my in-laws being in the living room was not normal for a Tuesday morning, especially with right. the staff. So they walk out and they know what the heck, you know, what's going on. They can, they can feel the energy. They can feel the energy. And so we sat down and it was, it was just prior to that, that I really felt like Juliet and and I can't, I can't say this with certainty. So I'm asking your listeners just to kind of bear with me on this, but I felt like, okay, is, is that what that morning walk was all about? And you've prepared me God to have this conversation, but I don't know what to say, you know? And I right. felt like I got the words. And so I just, I set them down and I looked at them and, and actually before I, before I say that, um, you've done such a beautiful job of helping me tell my story. And so, you know, obviously there were a lot of things that led up to this in terms of us being through tough times. And, and, and at this point, me being a pastor for over 15 years, when this had happened, I've helped many people. I've been in hospital rooms watching loved ones die in front of their family and, you know, trying to help them afterwards and all those types of things. So I was also, if there was an advantage, I didn't have an advantage with the pain. Nothing will prepare you for that. But I did have an advantage of having some understanding of what turn our lives could take if we go about this carefully. Right. Well, I mean, also from you just being 12 and starting the story. So anyone that's just jumping in now, if you go back to the story that your parents did reconcile years later, but the damage was already done. So you had that in the back of your mind, whether you were thinking it or not. But as you said, you were with all the experience that you had. Now you have to think about how am I going to protect these two boys who are here on earth who are, you know, you know, even though you're in this immense, again, probably out of body experience, this pain that you're going through, how do I protect them? 
Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And you know, to that point, before I launch out, you know, that is certainly something that for those of us who have lost a child, when you have more than one, you know, you, you even though you're in incredible pain, it's, it's challenging or difficult to not immediately think exactly what you just said, that I've got to, I've got to figure something out quick because how I frame this and, and how I help my kids is going to dictate possibly the rest of their lives, you know? And so I was aware of that, you know? And so I just, I just turned to them and I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We have two choices of how we're going to live this out as a family. And I've seen both. The first one is we can choose to focus on the tragedy, the pain of our tragedy, the fact that he died in a plane crash, um, you know, all of the other obvious things, the milestones, the birthdays, the Christmases, you know, all those things. And not that we weren't gonna feel those things, but if, if we focus on how he died, then we are going to be shadows of who each of us were created to be. And the pain that we're feeling now is going to keep us trapped. And, and we're not going to live our lives out the way we could have. But there's a second choice. And our second choice, and this is what we're going to do, is we can choose life. And what that meant for me, Juliet, was I said, listen, Gabriel, attack life. You don't need to you know repeat to your listeners everything, but... You know, I just told the boys, you know, he attacked it. He, he did all these things. He was always like, what's next? What's next? He was adventurous. And despite the fact that we obviously never wanted to lose him ever, he was in fact living his dream, even in the moment that he passed. And so I told them, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to choose to remember the way he lived and we're going to honor his life and the way he lived by doing the same in ours. And right. we just made that pact. And then part two, which was just as critical, was the grieving side, you know? And I said, so here's the thing. We don't know how it's going to hit us. You know, I don't know how it's going to hit me, mom, you guys. Um, we don't know from one day to the next. And for a while, probably even hour to hour, how we're going to feel. Are we going to be sad? Are we going to be angry? Are, are we going to be feel like we're maybe going into severe depression um, you know, all, all the different things that you're going to have to process going through the grieving process. I said, so here's what we're going to do as well. We are going to do this as a family. And what that looks like is we cannot allow ourselves to isolate. Now, keep in mind, they're only nine and 14. But I really, right. even in that moment, felt like I couldn't just tell them what we were going to do. I needed to invite them into what we were going to do. Well, and you know what, and I think it's so important for, you know, everyone to think about this and I, you know, I make the mistakes too. Um, kids are so much more resilient, but also so much more aware. Mm -hmm. They're so much more aware than we give them credit for. They're so much smarter. They are so much, um, bigger. Yes. They have immature brains, but when I really do feel when things that happen big, sometimes they have more insight because they can muscle through or not muscle through. That's not the word they can muddle through yeah. and, and be a little bit more. So not telling them, right? Like, Oh, this is like sugarcoating. It could have pissed them off. Cause they're like, what, what are you talking about? Like, this is devastating. This is debt. Like, what are you talking about? If you're like, okay, we're going to, you know, so I think doing that is, 
is really an important thing. Any kind of tragedy that you talk to children about, I think sugarcoating it or making it a little less than they're going to know. Yeah, I agree. No. And I think, you know, that was what I was sensing. So I just said, listen, so, you know, this is not going to be a two way, I mean, a, a one way street where if you're feeling sad or you need to cry or you need to be angry, you need to cuss, you know, cause nothing was off limits. There was no emotion that was, was inappropriate. You're allowed to feel them all. Um, we're not going right. to stop you. And if I'm crying, mom's not going to stop me. She's not going to come over and she's not going to hug me and tell me, Oh, stop, stop, stop. Don't cry. Don't cry. It's going to be okay. We're not going to do that. We're going to support each other and we're going to allow each other to feel whatever emotions we're feeling, to be able to express whatever those emotions are. And it's going to be a two-way street. There's going to be times, and this has happened over the course of the last three and a half years or so, where I'm the one who's feeling emotional and crying because there's a trigger of some kind. And I'll let them know how I'm feeling and why I'm feeling it. And so we, we set out you know, that morning with those two things, this life perspective of honoring him by the way we live, and then that, yes, we are going to have pain. And Juliet, I think we may have talked about this in our brief call. The pain is always going to be there. Our goal has never been to get rid of the pain. To me, the pain represents the love we shared with our son. So it's not about pain. I feel pain. But the difference is, is we had to tell our pain how to behave. We had to tell our pain where to go. Otherwise it was just going to keep us trapped. And we have not done this perfectly. We're not perfect human beings. You know, we've had weeks or days, whatever, where we, you know, we didn't execute on this, this pact we made perfectly, but it gave us something to constantly recalibrate to so that we could stay focused to continue to live according to those values. Right. And, and so I do have to ask you a question because I do, I know I told you this was going to be an hour show. <laughs> it is cl- clearly not. So I hope that this is not, um, I, I know you're plugging phones in. I had dogs barking. I was like, okay, I know this is went, um, but there's no, there's no close. I, I, there was no part of this, your story that I wanted to not know a little bit more. Um, and so I do apologize that it is going long for the listeners. I know they're like, wow, this is your longest show ever. But the story deserves that. The story just does deserve this time. And I do have to ask a question. There's not a question that I haven't asked, even though I know it could take us down a different path. But I do feel that your story is something bigger and you are going to be able to help so many different people. Um, And what you're doing now because of your story um, is just, again, going to be the uh, stories connect us. This, this is your story. You know, anyone that's a parent can feel the pain, can feel it. So I do want to ask you, I know when you said you're talking to the boys and it was like, okay, this is how we're going to show up. Do you think that was some of the 12 year old self talking for when your parents, you know, 12, 13, 14, when your parents went through that? Or do you feel that it was something that you learned in the faith journey or drug journey? Yeah. Or do you think it was a combination? No, that's an interesting question. No one, no one has asked me that that I can remember. Um, my gut reaction is both. You yeah. Know, I think there's always been something inside of me that had a prevalence towards resiliency, you know? Um, so, so I think there's that part that was in me. I think the key difference and why the combination is so critical is, is having the wisdom to know what that needs Mm -hmm. to look like, you know, certainly didn't come from that 12 year old, but I think both. 
Well, but also you see, and, and, and again, I could be putting words in your mouth, but your tragedy as you as a, as a kid is different than the tragedy that your sons are going through. And you can't, again, as we talked about, you can't say that one's bigger than another because it happened to each person. So you don't know how they are going to handle it. But again, something just innate, I'm sure, even if it's back around in back of your mind, not in the back of your mind, you're protecting that 12 year old boy of you, right? You know, maybe you wish that your parents handled it a little different and you wouldn't have gone down that path. Now that path you were meant to do, right? That path you were meant to do. So it's not going to change it. It's who you are. It's how you're handling this. It's how you're going to help so many masses of people with your story, with your book, with your coaching business. But I wonder how much of that little, you know, 12 year old boy was like, I got, I got to, I got to be better. I want these two not to have to, you know, you know, God again has their path. So you don't, you you can't change their story because of something you're going to say, but you can help shape it. Yeah. You know, I think I'm still probably answering that question, you know, for myself to be totally candid with you. Cause I think even in the yeah. personal development space, I'm, you know, and having helped coach mentor people for so many years, I think that's true about all of us. You know, I think there are things that, that, whether it's a trauma, whether it's just the way our lives were set up, but there's things that we do carry forward from our childhood, even if it's on a subconscious level that ends yeah. up causing some automated responses to things. And then, you know, when you hopefully when you've grown and you've become more mature and you've learned healthier coping mechanisms and you're full of more wisdom that you can kind of marry those two in a sense and, uh, you know, be, be more productive for your own life and, and be better positioned to help other people. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. So I do want to, cause as I said, I know I, we're going to have you back on. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. And, and if your wife, if your wife would, would is by someone who's got an appointment at two o'clock. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. Okay. Oh my gosh. Oh my I, I didn't God. even realize we talked that long. It's been amazing. I, well, I, my eyes are not good. And, um, I knew that we had technical difficulties in the beginning. Yeah. And so I was like calculating and I'm like, oh my gosh. But again, there was no time for me to stop you because there were, we needed this whole part. Yeah. I truly believe this whole part needs to be, you know, I explored. And so Take us into the book though, when you decided to do the book and the coaching business, and then you can tell your client, I'm so sorry. Yeah. So the ultimately, you know, three months after Gabriel passed COVID hit. So the whole world got turned on its head um, just a few months into it. So obviously during that time, the hardest thing for us to process through is Gabriel, but it wasn't the only thing. And I think for me, I, you know, I knew I was going to write a book someday, Juliet, but I didn't plan on it being within only a couple of years. I had no timetable. It wasn't like a goal or anything, you know, uh, to just get out a book as fast as I could, you know. And so it took a couple of years. And then I just saw so much fear unleashed on this planet. And this is not a political statement. It's just a fact. You know, there's been yeah. so much fear, um, so many people feeling hopeless, like there's maybe nothing to look forward to or work towards. And, you know, I just realized that, and a lot of loss in different forms. I just realized that, you know, with my story and this book, you know, it doesn't include just the story of Gabriel. It's got a lot of other stories, including other individuals, stories that will blow your mind and really inspire you. I just realized the world needs something, you know, 
Um, and so that's why I decided to go ahead and write the book when I did, which was just about a year ago now, or begin writing it about a year ago. And it was just with the idea that I, I just wanted to help people see that, you know, life is going to punch us all in the gut. We're all going to go through ups and downs. We're all, hey, we're all eventually going to die, right? I mean, we all know that. Uh, and we're going to mm -hmm. suffer seeing loved ones die at some point, but there's so much more to the world. And we're going to, we're going to miss out on opportunities if we allow fear to cripple us. And if we're not willing to take risks. And for me, one of those things and how I was inspired by Gabriel was I thought about launching a coaching business on the side for years. I thought about writing a book for years too, for that matter, but I'd always let excuses, fear, doubt, all those things keep me from doing it. So I decided that I need to write the book and I wrote it intentionally to help one person. Howard Bihar is the gentleman who's on my forward. Uh, he's the former president of Starbucks International. And so what Howard told me before I started writing the book, he said, write it for one person. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, I can do that. So I wrote it for one person, but I also wrote it for me at the same time, you know? Right. And so ultimately that's, you know, where that, went with a book and now it's a, the official launch date was yesterday. So that's available you know, everywhere. Books are sold and people can go to my website at bigbullbrave.us to check out everything else about me too. But uh, I've just made it my mission in life to help as many people along the way as I can, you know, yes, learn how to push through pain and, you know, uh, keep your family healthy, your marriage healthy, all those things, but, but also to live your dream and don't allow circumstances of life to dictate to you how you're going to live a mediocre life. Because the fact is the data shows most people on the planet hate what they're doing. Yeah. They do. And they're not courageous enough to do something about it. And only you can do that. Nobody's ever going to do it for you. So that's, that's just part of why I wrote the book and, and what I'm hoping people will be inspired to do. My tagline is courageous humans, inspiring lives. My whole life now is dedicated to finding courageous people, which courage is in every single one of us and doing my part, whatever little part that may be to help inspire them to be inspiring. I don't want to go and talk in front of hundreds of thousands of people and them all walk away going, wow, he's really inspiring and not walk out going, what am I going to do to be inspiring? That's what matters. Yeah, no. And I love that. And I think it's a, a brilliant message and, Gabriel's definitely there surrounding himself around you being like, I know you can do it. And Absolutely. not only, but you also took other positions, right? You, we talked about this throughout this episode. You took positions with blind faith. I'm jumping into here. I'm jumping into here. Yeah. So the fact that you didn't jump into the book and the, the coaching business fascinates me. We're going to talk about that at a different time because I have a lot of questions with that, but I'm not going to jump, jump into it. But it fascinates me when people are so big and brave in one moment right. and then there's something that holds them back. Yeah. And I do think it's a timing thing. I think it's a timing thing, but then I also am always like very curious of like why and you know what, what leads that. But I, I think timing is one of the things. And um, I think experience is another thing. It's just not the time that it's supposed to happen. Um, but I just have to say thank you so much for, you know, joining your next stop live. As I said, we're going to have you on again because I definitely want to talk more. We're going to follow everyone, you know, please go to um bigboldbrave.us US um or us, right? I want to make sure I'm saying this right. Um and 
and I actually, it's so true. I love, uh, I love that with us because it is, it is what you're doing. You're helping others. You're inspiring others from so many different tragedies that you had in your life to so many also of the big wins that you've had in life. You have so much to teach and so much to share and people need to hear it, especially as you said, now with that, you know, everything with all the fear, it's, it, it's, it's your time. Yeah. It is your time. And I want everyone to write down Clint Hatton's name and, and his website, big, bold, brave dot us or dot us, because you're going to be hearing a lot more from Clint. Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much. And again, I'm so sorry that we went so long. It's, I haven't even calculated it in my amazing. mind. Yeah, <laughs> it's all right. Uh, no, it, your story, there's no way as, as we were having the conversation, there is ways that you can, as a storyteller, concise things um, that, you know, but there is, this needed to be laid out the way it was. Thank you. Really, really do. And I, I wish you all the luck and I know we're going to be connected and thank you guys, everyone for joining your next stop live here on fireside. Please go follow Clint. And um, thank you again for wherever you're listening. If you're here on LinkedIn, if you're fireside YouTube, but Clint, thank you so much. Thank you. Julia. Awesome. Thank you.